Section two of The Nature and Authority of Conscience by Rufus Jones. Read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two The Moral Universe and the Individual. Some years ago, experts, by clever scientific devices, made an accurate calculation of the avoirdupois weight of Mount Sihalion in Scotland. When this peak of earth and rocks was weighed as in the balances, it became a fairly easy problem to calculate from it the gross weight of the entire globe. Any good book on physical geography will now give this weight in billions of tons, but it is important to remember that the immense total was arrived at by first discovering the actual weight of one particular mountain. Somewhat so, the moral nature of the cosmic universe can be discovered only by a study of the moral nature of man, for it is, in fact, here, in this strange, finite, infinite human being, and in his relations with other men, that the deepest moral meaning of the universe comes to revelation here or nowhere. It is sometimes hastily assumed that the cosmic universe below the level of human life, i.e., with man excluded, would be without moral implication. But there is no real universe with man excluded. We know only of a universe which includes man. The inevitable process of our world leads up to a being who is self-conscious, who has experience of values, and who reveals moral preferences. Creation is not creation without this achievement reached. When we talk of the cosmic universe, we must include in it the emergence of man and the processes of history. Amos, the earliest literary prophet of Israel, was the first to insist upon the fundamental moral character of the universe. He announced the discovery of a universal law of moral gravitation as sweeping as Newton's law of physical gravitation. I saw, this spiritual genius declared, I saw the Lord holding a plumb line in his hand. Every nation, according to the prophet's vision, had to meet this plumb line test. Nothing could save or buttress a ramshackle moral structure, an unplumb life. The way of the transgressor was seen to be not only hard, but impossible. The stars in their courses were allied against that nation which was not morally foursquare. But this herdsman of Tekoa, with his plumb line, had almost nothing to say of individual conscience. He thought of men in the mass. The nation was the unit. His law of moral gravitation was revealed in national catastrophes. By an insight which he could not have analyzed, he leaped to a general truth that the universe is morally constructed, and that all the time men play their miserable games, the dice on the other side are always loaded. The universe is sensitive to all deviations from the moral perpendicular, and it executes its own laws. It remained for later men to discover in their own souls the unescapable evidence that the universe at its highest peaks, where life comes to self-consciousness, does reveal a moral law which, like gravitation, is grounded on the eternal nature of things and can be verified. 
There is no finer pre-Christian instance of this discovery, the cardinal one which the race has made, than that revealed in the life of Socrates. His exterior was uncouth, but the moral character of his soul was sublime. His deepest prayer, if we can trust Plato, was that he might be beautiful and harmonious within. He lived and died in constant awe of a voice in his own soul which always seemed to him to be from God. "'You have often heard me speak,' said Socrates at his trial, "'of an oracle or sign which comes to me as a divine thing. This sign I have had ever since I was a child.' It is a voice which comes to me and always forbids me when I am going to do something wrong. I am sent, he adds, by God to do the greatest possible service to the city of Athens, for I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your persons or your properties, but first and chiefly to care about the improvement of the soul. A man who is good for anything, this moral leader concludes, ought not to calculate the chance of living or dying. He ought only to consider whether in doing anything he is doing right or wrong, acting the part of a good or a bad man. He awoke his greatest disciples, and through them the world forever, to the meaning of individual conscience, as a moral guide, and as a key to the real nature of the universe. In the dramatic struggle between the later civilization of Greece and the Hebrew ideals, which was brought to its most acute stage in the Maccabean struggle against Antiochus Epiphanes, the note of individual conscience was once more clearly sounded, as finely sounded as anywhere in literature, and forever afterwards made an essential part of the true Hebrew character. The moral issue is put in the form of a demand, made to selected individuals of the Hebrew race, to fall down and worship a golden image, embodying ideals foreign to their faith, or, as a consequence of refusal, to be cast into a glowing red-hot furnace. The answer is a thrilling one, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. The loftiest illustration, however, of individual loyalty to a guidance within the soul is to be found in the life of the great Galilean, and nowhere else in history has the ultimate moral nature of the universe been revealed through an individual conscience in such adequate measure. Not only at the opening of his ministry, but throughout the entire period of his public mission, he was subject to peculiarly acute temptation in the choice of the means for the establishment of the kingdom which it was his mission to inaugurate. He powerfully felt the popular patriotic appeal to be the Messiah of the nation's hope, and to fulfill the age-long expectations of his people and his race. 
On the other hand, he saw, with an unparalleled clarity of insight, what was involved in the essential nature of the spiritual life. He understood, as no one else has done, what are the ultimate forces which shape and fashion the moral world, and what constitutes the real goodness and blessedness of life. He came to realize that there could be no true kingdom of God that was not formed in the inner spirit and will of man, that love and grace and faith and good will and patience and purity of heart are the essential qualities of the enduring kingdom of the spirit that sovereign power and military triumph and even miraculous achievements are weak and futile as compared with the inherent power of gentleness goodness sacrifice of self and dedication to the way of love in the great test which came as the crisis developed, alone with his soul and God, he settled the momentous issue. The word conscience is never used in the Gospels, but that inner tribunal which we name by that word is nowhere more clearly in evidence than in the stages of the decision that carried Jesus to the cross in dedication to the untried but ultimately irresistible power of redeeming love he emphasizes at every point the nearness of the divine to the human in man the infinite preciousness of the individual soul the dramatic issues of the inner life the fateful decisiveness of moral choices the fact that the kingdom of god is an interior spirit and not an external power it is just because these truths are true that conscience can be the mighty force which it is. End of chapter 2 The Moral Universe and the Individual 